And if you have your Bibles, turn over to Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to start. There's two main passages we're going to be digging into today. The first is Colossians chapter 3, and the second is Hebrews chapter 10. If you recall last week, we opened up the Word of God and, and, and read and studied the prayer that Jesus prayed for us. In other words, it was one of his, one of his last challenges, one of the, his last desires before he was crucified and he died and he rose again. One of the last things he prayed for for us. And in that, we learned that his desire for us is to be united. Not, not somehow uniform, not somehow um, united and compromised. We're not talking about giving up our distinctives. We're talking about being united in the person of Jesus Christ. And the teachings that he laid out for us, the, the way of life that he laid out for us, and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. You see, that should cause unity because here's the reality. There is... At the foot of the cross, the ground is perfectly even. We are all sinners in need of salvation. We are all people in need of grace. We are all people who need Jesus. And because of that, when I look at my brothers and sisters in the context of the church, I don't view myself as being better or worse than anybody here because the only good that's in me is what Jesus Christ brings when he, when he puts himself in me through the person of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus is what is good. He is who is good. He is righteous. And the righteousness that I possess is a gift from but he also wants us to participate in the process of being sanctified. He prays for a sanctified church. What does that mean? That means that as we grow in our relationship with, with Jesus Christ and with other people, that the Holy Spirit works in us to be separate, to be holy, to be more and more righteous according to what God's desire is. The goal is for us to sin less and to be doing what God wants more. Now, the issue with sanctification is that many times we feel like the process of sanctification, the process of becoming more holy, is purely a work of our effort. What's interesting about that is the reality that you, your goodness was not good enough to save you, and your goodness, apart from the Holy Spirit, is not good enough to make you holy. Now, does that mean that we are to not put effort in? Of course not. We are to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. But the reality is this. The scripture tells us that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. It is the work of God in the Holy Spirit that inserts his goodness in you and then allows for your life to begin reflecting what God already says is true about you. So, we, so we, God wants us to be unified. He wants us to be holy. He has a purpose for us on this planet while we are still here. Well, the question that we often ask is, well, how? <laughs> how can this happen? How, how, what is the process? How, you know, I, if I'm not supposed to do it all on my own, if I don't have to put up all the, all the energy to do this on my own, how is it that I can participate in the process of becoming more holy? Because I don't know about you guys, but most days I don't feel holy. 
I don't. I, I feel like my flesh is at war within me against my, the spirit that's within me. And there's part of me that really wants to do good. The real, there's part of me that really wants to live a life glorifying to God. And there's also this big part of me that's fighting against it. And sometimes I feel almost spiritually bipolar. Right? There's two people in you just duking it out every single day. And the question, the question that is often brought up, well, which one of those sides is going to win? Which one of those sides is going to win? Well, the quote an old story that I won't go into today, the reality is the side's going to win is the one that you feed. It's the one that you allow to have the greatest influence in your life. You see, if you fill your mind and your heart with nothing but things of this world and you don't feed your spirit, your flesh will win. You will fall back into that old pattern of sin. If you're, if you're, if you're watching things and hearing things and, and talking about things and all this stuff that, that feeds your mind, all this stuff, all that stuff gets poured into your, your soul. And when you begin to make life choices, what happens is all that influence was going to, is going to be the primary motivator for your decision making. And you'll end up going down a worldly path. But if you fill your mind with the things of the Spirit, if you surround yourself with the people of God who are encouraging you to talk about the things of God and you think about the things of God and you process the things of God and you allow his still small voice to be the primary voice that you listen to on a daily basis, then you're feeding your spirit and you have a chance at victory in your life. How, do we be, how are we unified? Well, we're not unified around things of this earth. Have you noticed that the things of this earth do not bring unity? They don't. Have you noticed that when the concerns of this earth become primary in our life, that we become more and more divided based on opinion, all kinds of stuff. But when we begin to make decisions based on the spirit, we can be unified even about things on this planet. This Tuesday, we have an election coming up, right? Okay, and, and, and people are like, don't worry, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but I am going to tell you this. As you go to the voting booth, this book right here should be the primary motivator about how you vote. Are you praying about it? Don't assume because one political party seems to be the, 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 the one that you prefer that they're the ones that are always representing the Bible. Don't assume. Do your research and study, but then pray and open the book and allow the book to determine how you vote. But it's not just about voting. It's about how you go to work. How, how are you supposed to work in a world where people around you are living a life that's not glorifying to God? When you are surrounded by the world, how are we to allow the word of God to penetrate our heart? Well, here at Harvest Time, we, we have been praying for years about the process of discipleship. And Harvest Time has always been, from this very inception, it's called Harvest Time Bible Church for a reason. The, 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 the teaching of God's word has been primary here at, the, at harvest time for, for years. And it's important for us to know how to take the word of God and to have it affect every day. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, the teaching of God's word and the influence of the Holy Spirit should be there walking with you, allowing you to and empowering you to live a life glorifying to God no matter what you are faced with on a day-to-day -day life. 
So at harvest time, we illustrate the process of, of becoming more righteous, the process of being discipled in this way. We call it the life cycle. The life cycle at Harvest Time Bible Church. And there are four main elements that we're going to be studying over the next four weeks of this life cycle. The first is called gather. Now you'll notice, you'll notice that th this is not an exhaustive list. This is not something that is necessarily in the Bible per se. But we believe the concepts do a good job of encouraging us to understand our participation with the body of Christ as a whole is vital to our spiritual growth. You see, you are not designed to go lone wolf with your walk with God. We are designed for fellowship. We are designed to be with people. We are designed to live the spiritual life with other spiritual people who can speak truth to us, who can hold us accountable, who can encourage us, and who can help us to be on that process of sanctification. And you'll notice that we have four of these different objects that we are going to be talking about. The first is gather in the top left. The second is grow. The third is give. And the fourth is go. And just to give a quick explanation, gathering together means you're supposed to get together with other Christians. Now, in this context, we're talking specifically about Sunday gathering, getting together for church. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, I do get together for church on a fairly regular basis. Statistics are now showing us that regular attendance at church has gone from being at least three times a month to now being somewhere between one and two times a month, according to the United States national averages. And since COVID, that number is decreasing because the world is giving you every reason to not come and to participate in a local community of believers. I mean, some people have even taken COVID now and, and have extended it uh, to the point where people have chosen to not gather with other Christians at all. And, and I'm just telling you now, brothers and sisters, that should not be. It should not be. Now, don't get me wrong. Those of you who are watching online, we are so grateful that you're watching online. The ministry, the online ministry has been a huge blessing for a great many people at our church. We have quite a few people that are completely unable to leave their home, and they're able to, 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 to be participants in the church body um, while, while being stuck at home. That's amazing. So there are some Sundays where people have the flu or a cold, and they can't come in here, and they don't want to spread a germ around. That's an amazing gift to be able to watch it online. We have people watching it all over the world who are, by distance, not able to join us in person. That is an amazing gift for us to be able to provide other people. But I'm just going to speak to those of us in this room and to those that are online. If you are physically able to come in person, if there is not a, 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 a genuine health reason to not come in person, then you need to come back. You need to come back. Now, please don't hear that as being judgmental. Please don't hear that as being hateful. The reality is this. We miss you. We miss you. And the truth is, is that the world is going to do everything it possibly can to keep us from getting together. This first one that we're talking about, gathering, is extremely, extremely vital. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm walking in this Christian walk, it can be lonely. You know, getting together for an hour on Sunday morning with other Christians doesn't fix all of that, the, the feeling of walking alone. But it sure does help when I know there's three or 400 other Christians that I'm with on Sunday. When I'm living the rest of my week to know there's 400 other people that are praying and pulling in the same direction as my walk with God. 
And that's what the scripture teaches. It talks about the need for Christians to be with each other. So in, in our first passage in Hebrews chapter, I'm sorry, Colossians 3. Colossians 3. We get some specific instructions on, on what we should be doing when we get together with our corporate body. And, and like I like to do, we're going to read a ton of scripture. We're going to talk about it. We're going to read verses 1 all the way through verse 17. Just to kind of give it a setup here, in, 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 in Colossians chapter 2, um, the, the, the church in Colossae was having these false teachers that were coming in and trying to go back and add all kinds of, of um, extra-biblical standards about the Old Testament law back into the church. And, 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 and those who did not understand them or those who had not been circumcised or those who had not participated in the feasts were feeling like they didn't meet up to the standard of participating in church. And, and, and basically what he says in verse 23, he says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He, he basically is warning that those people who are attempting to stop the flesh based on their own power, based on their own effort, these things, these extra biblical laws and standards have no power. And they're pretty much worthless. But then in chapter 3, he goes into what the Bible says does have power. These are the things that he lays out as things that can help us to deny the flesh, to have victory over the flesh. Verse 1, Colossians chapter 3, he says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He is reminding us in that particular passage that our identity is no longer on the things of this earth. You have been raised and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You're no longer how the world defines you. You are now whoever you are as God defines you in Jesus Christ. Verse 5. He's speaking to church people here, guys. Therefore, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In other words, you will have earthly stuff in you, church. And to, and to pretend like you don't is actually going against Scripture. It's a, the, the way we have victory is to first to recognize the earthly junk that is in every last one of us. None of us is perfect. We all have this earthly stuff, but our responsibility through the Holy Spirit is to put it to death. And he says, therefore, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Now, this list is a little bit closer to home, I think. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. 
stop right there for one second. We don't grow in our holiness by choosing to believe that we have no unholiness inside of us. We must recognize where we fall short. But then it says, not only do we have to put off what is old, say no, repent from those things on a day-to-day walk as we walk with Jesus Christ. He says then, we need to put on the new self in verse number 9, which is being renewed. Notice this is a process. The process is saying no to the old junk, moment by moment, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Which, by the way, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you will not be able to say no to the old junk. If you are not saved, the scripture says you are a slave to the old man. You will continually do all that junky stuff. We want to invite you to give your life to Christ today if you do not know him as your Lord and Savior. But if you are a follower of Jesus, there is not this expectation of perfection in you. There is an expectation that you participate with the Holy Spirit in the process of becoming more holy. Notice that the the verbs in this context are are an ongoing thing. First off, in verse 7, it says, In these you two once walked. In other words, before you come to Christ, your identity is these sinful things. You are that. You don't have a choice but to be that. You, by choice and by birth, you are a sinner. But once you come to Christ, you are being sanctified. You are being made new. Verse 10, having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, the process... After the image of its creator, here there is no Greek, nor Jew, nor circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And he basically says all that stuff that used to be a sign of whether or not you knew Christ, the exteriors, there's a reason why he mentions circumcision. In the Old Testament, the way that you proved that you were a follower of God, a practicing Jewish person, was whether or not you had the external showing of circumcision in your life. And he says, now, in the cross, that external stuff doesn't mean anything anymore. What matters is what's going on inside of you. Is there a battle? Um, I had an opportunity to talk to an older woman not too long ago who was wondering about her salvation because she was struggling with sin. And I looked at her and I said, Sister, (laughs) the fact that you are struggling shows that you know the Lord. If, If you didn't know the Lord, you wouldn't struggle. You would just do it. You might have feel guilty occasionally. You might have a, a slight tinge of desire to stop. But the reality is this, that the proof of the work of the Holy Spirit in you is that when you commit sin, there is conviction. That there is a desire to change. That there is something inside of you that desires a different life than the sinful life you have chosen. Are you feeling convicted? It's not whether or not that you struggle. It's how you struggle. Verse 12. He then goes on to say, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. 
And if one has complained against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So let's stop for a second. Which of those lists does your heart reflect? Look, look, look at that list again. As a follower of Jesus, last week we talked about how, how we respond to difficult circumstances. Our testimony in the response to difficulty is really our testimony before men. If we respond in the exact same way the world responds to difficult circumstances, by being angry or by being overly passionate, by having evil desires, by being covetousness, to be, if we're wrath-filled, if we are, are, are malice and slander and we allow obscene talk to come out of us, we are reflecting the character of this world more than we are reflecting the character of God. And yet in verse 12, it says God's chosen... Be this, be holy and beloved, be compassionate, be kind, have humility, be meek, be patient with others, bear with one another. If one has complaint against another, forgive each other. You see, we should be known for forgiveness and kindness and love. And I know that people hate to hear about love, but the reality is this. The world does not love according to God's standard of love. And if you truly want to reflect the character of God, you will have a love that reflects his definition of love a love that speaks truth but does so out of love for the benefit of the other person a love that speaks into the lives of others that is quick to forgive is quick to elevate another person above ourselves a love that binds everything together in perfect harmony and we are supposed to verse 15 let the peace of christ rule in our hearts to in, in which indeed we are called in one body and be thankful. And then commands to us corporately. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, there's an element of when we get together corporately of us needing to be able to sing together. I'm a worship pastor, and I love to see people sing. And the reality is this. There are some people that no matter what song we're singing will never open their mouth, ever. Because there is this idea that when you sing, it has to be this pretty noise. Maybe you compare yourself to the people around you. Well, that person sings great. This person does not. I don't. There is never a condition in the context of the church where God says, make sure you make a pretty noise. The context is, make a joyful noise. And even, you can even make the argument of saying, make a loud, joyful noise. Because it's not about the people around you, and it's not about you. It's about lifting praises to God corporately together. But that's not all, it's not just about singing. It's also about teaching and admonishing one another. Somewhere along the way, we have bought into the idea that the only person who has the right to teach and admonish is whoever the pastor is that day behind the pulpit. And I'm telling you right now, that is anything but biblical. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Do I believe there's a place for us to stand up and teach the Word of God? Should the pastor be opening the Word of God and teaching us on a weekly basis? Absolutely. But notice that the command to teach and admonish one another is not just given to the pastor. It is to one another. The question is not whether or not you are hearing the pastor. Most people that come to church hear an an admonishment of some kind from the pastor. The question truly is, are you being admonished by other Christians? Are you teaching other Christians? Are you encouraging one another? Are you doing everything in word or deed, corporately or in your private life, according to the teaching of God's word? You see, that is why we come here together. It's not just about me talking or Jason talking or Dalmas talking and you listening. The idea here is we open the word of God. We bring something into your mind and then you take it and admonish and teach and encourage one another with the truth of his word, whether that be in a learning life group or a community life group, or even if you're having lunch with your brother or sister in Christ, the reality is, is that the word of God should dwell in us richly and help to guard our hearts in our minds. So as we get together corporately, yes, we're supposed to sing. We're supposed to encourage one another. We're supposed to speak to each other. We're supposed to challenge and teach one another from the word of God, but there's more to it than that. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. This is one of those verses that when people don't show up to church for a long time, you'll hear a pastor or somebody else throw at least one part of this verse at people. The part that says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, right? You've all heard that verse, right? Well, there's a lot more to this passage than just that phrase. In fact, we're going to start all the way back up in verse 14. Here's the context of what's going on here. In Hebrews chapter 10, um, basically what, what he is saying to them is that all the Old Testament sacrifices, all the Old Testament um, rules of how to maintain a right relationship with God that were given to the people of Israel, everything from the, the feast days to the sacrifices, the, 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 the days they would go to the temple, the, the, the Jewish religion had a, a set calendar based on all kinds of things that were designed to keep the people of Israel with their minds centered on God and then doing all kinds of symbolic sacrificial things that were supposed to maintain their relationship with him. And Paul, I'm sorry, the author of Hebrews comes in and says, you know, all that stuff was great, but you don't have to do it anymore. You don't have to do it anymore. In verse 14, he says this. For by a single offering, he's talking about the offering of Jesus, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Stop one second. Those who are being sanctified, guess who that is? That's you. If you're a follower of Jesus today, whether or not you're actively participating in it or not, you are in the process of being sanctified. Now, how far along you get, well, determines on whether or not you're depending on the Holy Spirit, and if you agree to participate with the Holy Spirit, if you engage in that process of sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit, but you are, if you're a follower of Jesus today, you are, you are participating in sanctification. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
So what he is saying here, again, is that we don't need to have a, a regular and repetitive offering for sin like the Old Testament Jews because Jesus Christ was the final offering for our sin. Period. End of story. And as such, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit moves into every believer. And the very law of God is written on the hearts of those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So what does that mean? That means that if you're a follower of Jesus today, when it comes to the teachings of the New Testament, there is a desire in us in some capacity to love God, to love people, and to do something about it. This is why they, the, when the scripture says they will know we are Christians by our love, is because that is a natural, supposed to be, a natural fruit of our relationship with God because the very law of God is written on our hearts if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today. And I would challenge to say this to you today. If you have a hard time loving people, believe me, there are times when I do. But if you have no desire to love people, look at your heart. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Because the reality is this, is that the desire to love God to love others and to serve others, to do something about it, should be a natural outgrowth of who we are as followers of Jesus. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. And he's basically saying to us in that right there, if you it, hold on to your assurance of faith, not based on your effort, not based on your righteousness, but based on the reality that you have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience by the work of Jesus Christ at the moment of his death, burial, and resurrection when you receive him. Verse 23, the challenge to the church corporate. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, it's not just about getting together to sit in a room to hear one guy talk. You can do that as a part of any club in the world. You can go to a political rally and get that. You can go to a TED Talk and have that happen on YouTube. If you don't know what a TED Talk is, don't worry about it. But if you do, you know what I'm saying. There's a difference between just coming and listening to one person and actually doing what the scripture is talking about when it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. You see, there's a, a need in there for us to remind each other about the faithfulness and the truth of God. Let us consider this, how to stir one another up to love and good works. When you get together, you see, you are important. You are important, not just for the pastor, not just for the church corporate, but somebody in this church, somebody you are gathering with, needs you to stir them up to love and good deeds. 
You see, somewhere along the line, we have gotten into the habit of thinking of church as a consumer mindset. We, ch- we choose churches like we choose restaurants. We think, well, I get better service here. I really like the meal better over here, but I like the music. It's a little loud. If you ever go to Texas Roadhouse, I love their food, but the music's crazy loud, right? Can't hardly have a conversation. But I love their steaks and especially those cinnamon rolls. Right? That butter, oh my goodness, that's some good stuff right there. But we can't pick church like that. And yet we do. That guy over here is a better preacher. This guy over here offers better music. And the volume there is crazy. But I like this part of the service over here. And we begin to think that the church, an attending church, a participating church, is about us. And listen, church, it is not about you or me. Yes, we do we get stuff out of it? Yes, somebody, hopefully, if they're listening and obeying God, they're going to stir us up to love and good deeds. We're going to be encouraged by someone else. But the reality is, is that you are called to stir others up to love and good deeds and to be an encouragement to somebody else besides you. The minute you become focused on you, you will find a reason not to come to church anymore. Or at the very least, to become a bitter, complaining person. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. It's about reminding each other who he is. His faithfulness, glorifying him, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to remind each other about the truth of God, but also to bring honor and glory through the voices that we have to God's ears corporately together. And let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We are not doing our job if we are not encouraging other people. You are here to stir somebody else up to love and good works. We aren't to neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Why though? But, in fact, it actually tells us, why should we not neglect church attendance? Because we're supposed to encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I don't know about you guys, <laughs> but every day you turn on the TV, you turn on Facebook, you turn on the internet, and it becomes more and more evident that Jesus is coming. Which is an amazing, amazing gift, but it, what's, what, what strikes me is how many people are deathly afraid of the circumstances that are probably going to transpire before Jesus returns. It's almost like we think, that God is not in control. We feel that the world's out of control and, we, and we're going to have to go through some terrible stuff. And the reality is we may have to. But God is still in control. But if we get together as followers of Jesus and we remind each other, we encourage one another with the truth of who we are and where we end up going and the reality that we win because God wins. If we hold on to that and remind each other of that, we can be people of faith that live differently in response to the world. Therefore, having a good testimony before men until Jesus returns. So I ask you this question. I ask you this question to people at home. Why do you come to church? Why why do you gather Why do you gather? Is it something that you just mark off your list? 
as the religious thing to do, attending church is just something that my family's always done? Or do you look at your participation in a corporate gathering as something that is important, not just for you, but for your brothers and sisters in Christ around you who need your encouragement? Right now, Satan wants to isolate us and to make us think that we are the only people in the world living for Jesus Christ. You go to work tomorrow and maybe you're the only Christian within four blocks of offices. Or maybe you're surrounded by lost people. And if we do not spur one another up to love and good deeds on Sunday and throughout the week, if we are not spending time with other followers of Jesus who are bearing witness to the truth of who he is, then we will only be feeding that flesh side of us. And that flesh side will take over and we will be discouraged. But if we take the time to remind each other of who we are in Christ, of who God is, what he has done, the reality that he has already won, and we are on his side, if we encourage each other with that, then when we face difficult circumstances, we will not have to be downtrodden. We will not grieve as those who have no hope. We will not suffer through the process of all this stuff without having some hope on the other side because we know that no matter who gets elected to office, God is still in control. We know no matter how many people are laid off, God is still in control. We know no matter how our, our financial system bears, good or bad, that God is still in control. And we can live a life glorifying to him in response, as you live your life, as you make choices, as you vote, as you go to work, which set of values are you reflecting? God's values or the values of this world? When you respond to negative circumstance, when you get squeezed, what comes out? God or the world? And while you are participating in the church today, when you are engaged, are you here selfishly? Or are you here because others need you to speak truth, life, and godliness and to remind them of who they are in Christ? Step number one in the discipleship process for us is to gather together, but not just to gather to sit and listen, but to gather together with a purpose. I challenge you to continue to gather. Let's pray together. Father, you are good. Thank you for your body. Thank you that in your eternal wisdom that you have, that you have established your church and that you have told us that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that nothing on this planet can destroy something that you have begun and created. And Lord, I lift up the church universal all over the world. For sure, there are so many of our brothers and sisters who are battling on, in, in foreign worlds and even part of our own country that are battling against the world that is trying to destroy it because Satan knows that the gospel, that you have chosen to use the gospel of Jesus Christ through the church to bring others into your kingdom. And I pray today for our brothers and sisters who are facing persecution today. But God, I pray for harvest time in the church in the United States of America that we would slip away from being consumers of church and that we would begin to be the church. That we would speak truth, life, and godliness, that we would encourage one another, that we would gather together 
so that we are reminded of who you are and who you've made us to be through your son, Jesus. Have your way in us today as we sing this last song. If there are things in our heart, Lord, that we need to confess to you, that are, uh, if we need to confess to you the reality of just being a consumer and not an actual participant, I pray that you'll change us with the power of your Holy Spirit. And if there's anybody in this room who doesn't know you, who's never experienced a saving relationship with Jesus, God, I pray that you would bring them to yourself today. We love you, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone stand up with us and sing this final song together. Let's lean on the person of Jesus Christ.